You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. And a good word it is. You may have a seat there and go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, while you're doing that, uh, just a few uh, quick things for you. First, if you are new to Stonegate, welcome. It is great to have you today. And we just hope that the Spirit of God um, is so uh, present in this room and so helpful to you in particular. We're praying for that today and just asking the Lord for that. And if you'll just make sure, if this is your first time at Stonegate, if you'll just take one of those black cards and one of the seat backs in front of you, should say connect on it. You can fill that out during the service. At the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket. And if you'll put that card filled out in that basket, or better yet, take it to the connect table, which is on the other side of that wall right there. Um, They'll exchange that for a gift out of the connect table, but that would help us serve you and follow up with you going forward, which we would love to do. So if you would fill that out for us, that would be great. And if there's any way we can pray for you, there should be a green card in that seat back as well that says prayer requests on it. Feel free to fill that out, put that in the offering basket at the end, and that would put you on our prayer list. And we would love to intercede on your behalf. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, I wanted just to tell you a couple of things happening in and around our church over the next month. April is, uh, there's a lot going in April. At the end of the month, we have uh, a Friday night, Saturday event in particular for our ladies. It's called Behold and Become. It's that last weekend in April, the 26th and 27th. We have a few ladies already excited about that. And I just think that is going to be such a wonderful a couple of days for all of our ladies. It's going to help you connect with other ladies in our church. It's uh, going, to, you know, going to be a moment where you're equipped to love and follow Jesus uh, more effectively. So it's just one of those moments where I, I just think most of our ladies should probably be there. So I just want to encourage you toward that. If, if you haven't signed up, we have a Behold Become booth right out there in the foyer. You can sign up this morning before you leave. Um, we would just love to see you there. I think it would be a really helpful, good thing for you. And then, uh, this is for everyone in our church, a week from this Tuesday, so not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday, Stonegate Equip starts, another round of that. So uh, we have three uh, Equip classes going on uh, this go-around. One is Gospel Foundations, just how do you apply the good news of Jesus to your everyday life? Everyone at Stonegate at some point should go through uh, Gospel Foundations. Uh, The next one is uh, the Gospel and Evangelism. Uh, Our friend Travis Wyckoff, who's on staff for a long time, is going to be leading that one. Um, And we're just going to do a great job. So one one of the things that we're praying for is that God would help us be more fruitful missionaries. So if you're yearning for that and want that, make sure you sign up for Gospel and Evangelism. It's going to be four weeks where we're just thinking through some of those sorts of things. And then the other one is our Bible study method, just teaching people how to study the Bible. We're going to be in Galatians and thinking about uh, Christ's righteousness. Uh, What does it mean to to live in the righteousness of Jesus? So I think that would be super helpful. So I just want to encourage you to make sure you sign up. There's also a booth out in the foyer, kind of by our groups table, uh, where you can do that. And so uh, make sure you sign up for that. If you're uh, a lady in the room, that event at the end of the month, and for anyone in our church family, Stonegate Equip would be great. In particular, if you're not in a home group right now, Stonegate Equip would be a great first step for you to get to to be around some more people at Stonegate. It would be such a great, easy step for you to take. So make sure you jump on that. Stonegate equip starting a week from Tuesday. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 5. And we're actually about to be in Matthew chapter 19, so you might go ahead and find that as well. But in Matthew chapter 5, we are in a set of sermons uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking. It's it's his sermon, three chapters long. And last week uh, in verses 27 through 30, uh, Jesus began to expound upon the seventh commandment. And he brought the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, all the way down to lustful intent. 
So if you were here last week, you heard us say that Jesus' point is that we're all sexual sinners. Every one of us have broken the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment leaves not a single human being unscathed. That this was Jesus' point in, in verses 27 through 30, that we are all sexual sinners in need of the grace of God. Now in verses 31 and 32, Jesus takes another step into the seventh commandment. So, so he's still under that heading of the seventh commandment. He takes another step into it, applying it to a very difficult and sensitive topic, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It doesn't get any more difficult to preach upon that topic. It doesn't get any more difficult. It, it's sensitive, it's difficult, and, and the reason it's difficult is because few things in life are as painful as a divorce. Few things in life are. We all need to begin today by just feeling that, that we're about to talk about an issue that is not abstract and theoretical, but is, but is felt in this room. Uh, listen to one pastor talk about this. He says, For many of you who have walked through a divorce and are now single or remarried, or those parents or whose parents were divorced, or some other loved one, the mere mention of the word carries a huge weight of sorrow and loss and tragedy and disappointment and anger and regret and guilt. Few things are more painful than divorce. It cuts to the depths of personhood unlike any other relational gash, it is emotionally more heart-wrenching than the death of a spouse. Death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually unclean pain. In other words, the enormous law. Uh, in other words, the enormous loss of a spouse in death is compounded in divorce. The upheaval of life is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture the soul. The loneliness is not like the loneliness of being a widow or a widower or a person who has never been married. It's in a class by itself. A sense that the future has been devastated can be all-consuming. And then there is the agonizing place of children. Parents hope against hope that the scars will not cripple, cripple their children or ruin their future marriages. Tensions over custody and financial support deepen the wounds. And add to all this that it happens in America to over four out of every 10 married couples. That hurts, that pain, those relational gashes are in this room. And so we want to be sensitive to that this morning. Um, I, I hope that, that you feel from me a sensitivity to that, knowing that, that we're talking about, for many in the room, what is the most painful area of their lives. It would almost lead you to ask, like, well, why in the world would we even talk about it? Well, I think one reason is because Jesus talks about it. And because Jesus talks about it, we have to talk about it. This is one of the reasons I love preaching through books of the Bible, is it doesn't let you skip over things. And so if Jesus addresses it, we have to address it. And one of the reasons I think it's important for us to address is because most Christians are so fuzzy in their thinking about these things. We just, we just haven't thought this particular area through, marriage, divorce, remarriage. Our culture has taught us a lot about those things. 
Our culture definitely um, establishes the boundaries of what's okay according to culture with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But most Christians have not wrestled through the scriptures. There's just a general lack of awareness on how Jesus and how the scriptures address these things. And the reason that's not okay to be fuzzy in our thinking on it is because we actually want to be helpful, don't we? I mean, I, I know most of you in the room, and I know that you want to be helpful to marriages as they're struggling. You want to be helpful to the friend that comes to you and says, I'm thinking about a, a divorce. We, we all want to be helpful in these ways. And to be helpful, we have to know what the Bible says. To, to be helpful, we both have to be able to confront with the truth of what the Bible says, and, and we need to sort through that. We need to be able to confront when necessary, and we need to be able to comfort with grace. If we want to be helpful, we, we've got to be able to do both of those things. And, and, and we need both, to, both to confront with truth, to, to be equipped to do that, and to comfort with grace, to be equipped to do that. We, we need both, and here's the great thing. Jesus gives us both of those things. He gives us what we need to do both of those well. So what we as a church have to do is to think it through together, to think it through together. And that's what we're doing this morning, thinking through the, these big categories of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So this takes us to Matthew chapter 5. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus addresses that particular topic, the, these areas. But in Matthew 5, it's a truncated version of what Jesus says in other places. Uh, you might think of it as a summary version the condensed version. But if you turn over to Matthew 19, I just wanna encourage you to go ahead and do that. Turn to Matthew 19. We see an expanded version of what Jesus has to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And we're gonna see three things. God's view of marriage, God's view of divorce, and God's view of remarriage. So we'll start with marriage, God's view of marriage. And you see this in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse three. Starting in verse three, the Bible says this, and the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he's going back to Genesis chapter two now. Verse 5, and, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, now they're going to quote and, and refer back to Deuteronomy 24. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, th this is an interesting passage because the Pharisees, uh, they've, they've come to Jesus because they want clarification. They've got a question, and they want Jesus to answer the question. And, and, and what they want clarified are the ways out of marriage. Jesus, tell me how we can end marriages. Tell me the way out of marriages. But, but rather than giving them the ways out of marriage, Jesus first wants to give them the why, the, the reason that they should stay in their marriage. I mean, it's interesting. They come with the question. Jesus redirects their question, and he tells them why they should stay in the marriage. Jesus points back to Genesis chapter 2, 
verse 24, and he holds up God's design for marriage. God's point in, in marriage, the purpose of God in marriage. And if you want to just a condensed down summary of Genesis chapter 2, that the point and the purpose of what is marriage, or by the way, let, let me go one step back, and let me just tell you what Jesus is doing here. In pointing back to Genesis 2, Jesus is saying two things about marriage that we need to know. One is that marriage is God's doing. But by pointing back to Genesis, he's, he's showing us marriage is God's doing. That God created marriage. He is the one that performs the first wedding in Genesis chapter 2. And therefore, because God has created and he performs the first wedding, God also defines marriage for us. He defines it. He shows us what it is. He creates the barriers around marriage. And according to Genesis chapter 2, if you just want a summary version of what marriage is, Ray Ortland summarizes it this way. Here's what we learn in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. That, that's how God sets up marriage. This is how God defines marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. Now, we live in a culture that wants to expand the meaning of marriage to basically be any arrangement between anyone. That's the cultural ethic. It's any arrangement between anyone. As long as th th these two people love each other, we're good with that. It's any arrangement between anyone. But that is not just an expanding of the meaning of marriage. That is a fundamental redefining of marriage. Th that's what that is. And part of what uh, Jesus is doing by pointing us back to Genesis 1 and 2 is he's saying that, that marriage is not your idea. You didn't invent marriage. As people, you didn't create marriage. You're not the one who, who came up with this idea. Marriage sprang from deep within the heart of God. It's, it's God's invention, not ours. Therefore, God gets to define marriage, not us. It's God's doing. But secondly, by pointing back to Genesis chapter 2, uh, Jesus is, uh, is reminding us, and this is, we see this throughout the, the Bible, and in particular in the New Testament, that marriage is a display. That marriage is a display. In some ways, marriage is for human beings. So it is for procreation. It is for um, the enjoyment of two people. It is for companionship. In, in those ways, it is for human beings. But more than marriage is for any human being, marriage is first and foremost for God. It's first and foremost for God. Now, this is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, when, when Paul says, this mystery is profound. He's just talking about marriage, the role of a man in marriage, the role of a woman in marriage. He's saying, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, that, that marriage, it refers to Christ and the church. This is what marriage is doing. It's, it's a display in that way. It's, it's referring to Christ and the church. Paul's point is that, that earthly marriages are meant to be metaphors. Earthly marriages are metaphors of God's covenant love to the church. This is, this is what marriage is. It's not just like a helpful insight about marriage. This is the reason marriage exists. Earthly marriages are metaphors of God's covenant love to the church. Earthly marriages exists to paint a living, breathing picture of God's eternal marriage to us through Jesus. That's why there is such a thing as marriage. So just take a step back and think about this for a minute. Why do men and women fall in love? Why is there a thing called love? 
But why, why do these things happen? Why do couples um, spend hours talking about nothing to one another? Why is it that when they're apart, there's this deep longing to be reunited? Uh, but why, why do they write all of these juicy love notes to one another? Why, why do people do that? Why is there such a thing as love songs, romantic comedies? Why do people um, make this mega commitment to one another called marriage? Why do people do this? Why do these things exist? And here's the Bible's answer to that. Here's why all of those things exist. They exist to be a signpost. They exist to be seen through. They exist not so that you'll obsess about, wow, that person really loves that person. That, that man really loves that woman. That woman really, it exists to be seen through all the way to the unbreakable, never stopping, tender, sacrificial, gentle love of King Jesus for his people and then our joyful deference to him. That is why all of that exists. Love, marriage, notes, romantic comedies, love songs. Every time you see a, a wedding go down, you see a person fall in love, then make that mega commitment called marriage. Every time you see that go down, you are seeing a reenactment of the biblical love story. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing a biblical enactment, whether they realize it or not, they're retelling the story of the Bible. They're retelling the story of God the Son stepping down into this world, taking on human flesh, pursuing his bride across enemy lines and winning her over. Every time you watch a wedding, you're watching a reenactment of that big biblical love story. If you're married in the room, you have been swept into something much larger than you much larger than you. And what keeps Christians married is not our personal wants being met. What keeps Christians married is the desire to tell the truth about the never stopping, always pursuing love of Jesus. That's what keeps us married. Because we want to tell the truth about Jesus. That, that's why Christians stay married. And this is the point of the passage. They wanted ways out. Jesus is reminding them of why they should stay in. He's reminding them that marriage is a big deal. With your marriage, you have the opportunity to either tell the truth about Jesus' nonstop, never-breaking, always-pursuing love, or to tell a lie about it. And he's saying this is why you should stay in. That This is why you should be about doing whatever needs to be done to see your marriage redeemed and reconciled. So I, I think before we go on, this would be just a good moment of application if you're married in the room to ask yourself the question, is my marriage right now telling the truth about God's marriage to me through Jesus? If you're a husband, ask yourself the question, are you, in the way you're interacting with your spouse, are you, are you telling the truth about Jesus? If you're a wife, ask the question, am I, am I telling the truth in the way I'm interacting with, with my husband, am I telling the truth about Jesus? Is, is my marriage being a faithful representation of the marriage? This is the first thing Jesus wants us to see in this passage, his view of, of marriage, that this is an opportunity for us to tell the truth about Jesus. Now we go on to the second thing we see, God's view of divorce. That's God's view of marriage, now God's view of divorce. Now let me just make a few observations. A couple are going to be in this passage in Matthew 19, one's going to be outside of it. Here's the first one. The first thing that we can observe in Matthew 19 
is that divorce is a result of sin. Now that requires some explanation, so hang with me. But one of the things we see here is divorce is a result of sin. You see this in verse 7 and 8. They said to him, the Pharisees said to Jesus, why then did Moses command one? By the way, Moses didn't command anybody in the Old Testament to get a divorce. He made it permissible. It was a concession, but not a command. Why did he command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is saying here, he's letting us know that divorce is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that it's intended to be. Divorce only exists because of the hardness of heart. Divorce only exists because of sin. Now, let me give a clarifying kind of round, a statement that will kind of round that out. It only exists because of sin. So let me just tease that out. Divorce is a result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. You need to have both ends of that, that equation there. Divorce is the result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. In other words, if sin didn't exist in the world, and can't we, oh my gosh, are we not with eager expectation just longing for that day when sin no longer exists? But he's saying if sin, if sin did not exist in the world, divorce would not exist either. So in that way, divorce is a result of sin, of hardness of heart. Here's the second thing that we can observe about divorce. Um, divorce is hated by God. This is Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord our God. Um, it, it's interesting. Laura and I, we, uh, we have a bunch of young kids in our house. And so we try to help them pay attention to their words, to use appropriate words, uh, kind of appropriate words to fit the, the, the situation. And it's not uncommon at the dinner table where a huge word like hate gets thrown out for a small thing like mashed potatoes, right? It's not an uncommon moment. And when that moment happens, we typically latch onto that and we use that moment to help, to help our kids think through the use of their words, that, that you need to use small words for small things and big words for big things. And in this moment, we're using a big word hate to describe a relatively small thing like mashed potatoes, right? And the problem is if we're using big words to describe small things, whenever we actually try to describe a big thing, we don't have any words left. We've already used them on the small things, right? So, so we need to refrain from using small words for, for big things so that we have those words left like hate to describe the big things in life, like, like death and like sin and like Satan and like th those big things, right? So we have to be careful with our words. And, and in a similar way, I think Jesus is careful about his words. God uses big words, hate, to describe big things like divorce. And, and it, then that leads to the question of, well, why is divorce a big thing? Why, why is that? And I think when you, when you just consider the purpose of marriage, that marriage is a metaphor meant to tell the truth about the marriage we have, the covenant that we have in Jesus. It's meant to tell the truth about how God loves us. When you see marriage that way, then it makes sense as to why God would use the word hate to describe divorce. At its essence, divorce is tearing at the very design of marriage. It's, it's tearing at that design. Divorce takes what is supposed to display that never-breaking, always-pursuing love of Jesus for his people, and it's distorting it. It's making it say something that it shouldn't. 
And then I think even behind, you know, marriage tearing at the purpose of marriage, I think God sees the consequences of divorce, the, the difficulties that, that come out of divorce. God sees the deep relational gashes that divorce inflict upon men and women and children and their children's children. And so for everyone in the room, and I I know there are some in the room this morning that the burning question you came in with, a, a question that's alive in your heart is, I am thinking about divorcing my spouse. Gosh, if that's you, that is such a hard place. We just empathize with the difficulties And we just want to remind you and point you to the scriptures and and places like this just to consider God saying, I I hate divorce. I I want to just remind you that to not not buy into that myth that says divorce is going to solve all of your problems. Because it's not. You can talk to any divorced person and they will be the first to tell you that it creates a whole list of new problems. So I just want to remind you of this text of God saying, I don't like it. I hate divorce. And if that's you thinking through divorce today, I just want to encourage you to get in good community. Get inside good community with people who can love you, pray for miracles, hang in there. Consider that that passage in Malachi chapter 2, divorce is hated by God. Here's the third observation about divorce. Is divorce is regulated by God. Divorce is regulated by God. Although marriage is, is meant to be a picture of God's never-breaking, always-pursuing love for his people, there seems to be, and I'm going to use that word um, intentionally, there seems to be two grounds in the Bible that make divorce permissible. And I'm using that word, again, seems intentionally. And here's the reason. I'm about to give the majority view of how divorce and remarriage play themselves out. That the majority sort of interpretation is people have wrestled through the Bible. But what I'm about to say is not the only view. There are some people who are more restrictive than I'm about to say. And I'm using that word seems to apply appropriate tension to this conversation. You should, people who are more restrictive, who are going to say there is no divorce permissible in the Bible and no remarriage permissible in the Bible. um, There's some of my favorite people in church history. They're people who like love the Bible and are thinking it through. They're not crazy for getting to the place that that, that they've gotten, that they are thinking the Bible through and trying to be faithful to what they see in the scriptures. So that word seems is an appropriate sort of tension that's added to the conversation on purpose that everyone walking through a season like this, thinking through this, has to wrestle through that, that sort of reasons that people get to that more restrictive view. Okay, but I'm going to show you that the, and kind of walk through the majority position in church history. And the majority position has been that there are two permissible grounds for divorce. Two. And here's the first one. The first one is adultery. And that's in the context of Matthew 19. So here's, here's the context of what's happening. Virtually everyone in the first century believed that there were biblical grounds for divorce. So if you were just to to miraculously show up in the first century and you were to talk to people, virtually everyone would assume that there are grounds, biblical grounds for divorce, uh, for divorce. The the debate was over what are those grounds for divorce? What what are those grounds? And that takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to put it on the screen for you and read the first verse in Deuteronomy 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and by the way, this is the passage that the Pharisees are pointing Jesus back to, asking him to explain. 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Okay, the debate was over. Not was there biblical grounds, but what were those grounds? In particular, what does that word or that phrase, some indecency, mean? And there were two schools of thought in the first century aligned behind two uh, kind of predominant rabbis. The first was Shammai, and he believed indecency meant some sort of sexual sin, a grave sexual sin that, that severed that one flesh union. That was his take on what some indecency meant. But there was another rabbi, his name was Hillel. He was the majority view in the first century. And that majority view under Hillel believed that, that some indecency meant anything that was undesirable in a spouse. All the way down to my spouse literally burned some breakfast this morning. That's some indecency. Therefore, that is grounds for divorce. That, that was the majority view. And this was the rate so Jesus then comes in and weighs in on that question. And in Matthew 19, verse 9, here's what Jesus says. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus is talking to believers here. And Jesus is saying that sexual sin severs the covenant of marriage so severely that it makes divorce permissible. This is what it seems that Jesus is saying here. Now, let me clarify with this. Although divorce between two Christians is permissible in this case, although it is permissible, it's never most desirable. And for two Christians, it's never inevitable. Listen to how one author describes this. He says it this way. Since all believers have the word and the spirit, they have all that they need to bring about not only reconciliation, but in the future, a marriage that sings. I, if, regardless of how rough your marriage is right now, if God can, can part the Red Sea and, and redeem and rescue that rebellious Israel of the Old Testament, then he could rescue and redeem your marriage. And, and we just want to be a church that holds that up, that leans in that direction, that holds that up as the most desirable thing, regardless of, of the ruin that's happened in our marriage. Jesus can do that. But, but this seems to be one permissible grounds for divorce. God regulates divorce with adultery. And here's the other one. The other, what seems to be permissible grounds is abandonment. And this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The relevant text is verses 10 through, uh, through 15. I don't have time to, to work out and sift through that text with you this morning. So I just want to make a couple of comments on it. The, the context of 1 Corinthians 7 is uh, Corinth. So Corinth was a church plant in a pagan city. That's that the letter was written to that church plant in that city that, that um, was full of unbelievers. So a church gets planted there, the gospel gets planted there, and all of a sudden you have um, two couples that used to hate Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus saves one of those uh, members of the, the marriage, uh, the husband or the wife, one of them, and now you have a marriage that has one unbeliever in it and one believer in it. And they're looking at Paul and asking the question, Paul, what do we do in that scenario? What, what's, what's the appropriate you know, response to that? And Paul's answer is, remain as you are. 
It's the theme of 1 Corinthians 7. Remain as you are. Make it work. Serve your unbelieving spouse. Pray for them. Pursue them. Show them the love of Jesus. Just in the daily sort of outworkings of your life, pursue them and, and show them who Jesus is by your life. But, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 7, if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, so the believing spouse is pursuing and they're serving and loving their unbelieving spouse, but, but if that unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, Paul says that you're not enslaved to that marriage. You're, you're free marriage. So this seems to be the second grounds for biblical divorce. When, when a believer and unbeliever are married, Despite the, uh, the believer's pursuit, the unbeliever abandons the marriage. It seems that the Bible is saying the believer would be free in, in that scenario. Now, this is the majority sort of view in church history. It's got the, the best and the biggest company of Bible-believing men and women over the last 2,000 years of church history. So reason number one, two believers, adultery. Reason number two, an unbeliever and a believer, uh, an abandonment. Now, I just want to take a moment to just linger over that so that we notice what is not on that list. They're an idiot. She's lazy. She doesn't, he doesn't make me happy anymore. I've fallen out of love with that person. We don't have anything in common. We just, we just, we just don't get along anymore. None of those are on that list. Okay, now, the, the next 90 seconds are really crucial. I want to explain one and just clarify one, one particular uh, kind of point, in particular under that the idea of abandonment. And I, I'm really cautious to say this because it's a slippery slope, but, but it needs to be said. It seems to me that the Bible does not detail everything that could fit under that word abandonment. In other words, could there be a situation where a spouse sins in a way that is high-handed, in a way that is hard-hearted, in a way that is prolonged over a long period of time with no repentance? And could that spouse, although they're not saying, I want a divorce and I'm, and I'm abandoning this marriage with my lips, could they say that with their life? And again, I, I'm so cautious in this moment but, but, and we would always lean toward reconciliation. We would always lean toward perseverance. But would we be willing to wrestle through and are we willing to wrestle through? Could this equate into abandonment? Could this abuse equate into that? Could, could this situation equate into that? I, I, yes, we, we would be. With a lot of fear and trepidation, we, we would just ask that question of could this person be saying with this particular hard-hearted, prolonged, unrepentant sin that they're abandoning, not with their lips, but with their life. A lot would have to happen in their church. Discipline would have to be in act. I mean, there's a lot of things that would have to happen in there, but I think there is some scenarios under that abandonment that could fit that sort of a thing. But these are the two grounds, the two ways that the Bible regulates divorce, adultery and abandonment. This is God's view of divorce. Now let's get to remarriage. What is God's view of remarriage? Of remarriage. You see this in Matthew 19, verse 9. And here is how Jesus talks about it. Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. I'm just going to read that one more time for us. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, 
except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So there are some who look at this passage and they, and I, they're not crazy. They're, they're, they're trying to like sift through what does this text mean and they land on the position of there is never biblical grounds for remarriage after divorce. That would be a minority position, but that is a well-tested position in church history. Some of my favorite people in church history land there. That, but that, again, that is a minority position. The majority position, it's got the best sort of uh, synergy from church history, uh, is, is this view. It's, it's our view as a church, that remarriage can follow some divorces. That remarriage can follow some divorces. Now, to summarize what the some divorces means, here, here's the way that, that we say it. Is that biblical grounds for divorce give biblical grounds for remarriage. Biblical grounds for divorce turn the key and give biblical grounds for remarriage. So when divorce is biblically permissible, then remarriage would also be biblically permissible. So let's just think through the two grounds for divorce. Uh, the first one is two Christians are married. One commits adultery. So the spouse that is sinned against, that they've divorced on biblical terms, could then remarry biblically. Now, we need to sort through Matthew 19.9 just for a second. Why, why is that? Look at Matthew 19.9 again. Jesus is clarifying the exception for divorce. You should not divorce except, right? And that's sexual immorality. Now that same exception, the construct of the sentence could easily apply that same exception to both the, the divorce and the remarriage. So that I think the right way to read that verse is to say, you should not divorce except in this case, sexual immorality, and you should not remarry except in this case, sexual immorality. So that same exception would apply to both divorce and the remarriage, making remarriage permissible when you've had that, that you know, biblically permissible divorce. Now here's the, the second grounds. It's one unbeliever and one believer. First Corinthians 7. And despite the pursuit of the, unbelie or the believing spouse, the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. I think in that scenario, that the believing spouse would be free to remarry. The key text there is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. And Paul in that, that text says that, that in this scenario, that believing spouse is not enslaved. That's the negative way to say it. The positive way to say it would be to say that they are free. And I think just like in Matthew 19, 9, that freedom goes for both their divorce and their remarriage. It applies to both of those two scenarios. But let me clarify again. Although divorce and remarriage are permissible in these two cases, for, for, for two Christians, it's never inevitable. It's never the most desirable thing. Reconciliation is always the most desirable thing. This is what Jesus is getting at in this passage. He's saying, let, before we talk about any of the ways out, let me show you the reason you should stay in, the why that you should stay in. Your marriage is meant to tell the truth about my never breaking, always pursuing love for you. So, so there, that's always the most desirable outcome. Now, here's what I wanna do for the rest of our time. I wanna take the last few minutes and I wanna to try to apply this across the room to the various um, sort of categories of people that I know are here today listening to this. And first, I wanna apply it to our singles in the room, to our singles. Um, you know, single, the, singleness comes with such unique hardships, comes with unique burdens to bear. And I, I just want everyone that's single in the room to know that we as a church family wanna be sensitive to that. We want to do everything we can for this church to actually be a family for you. 
We desire that and want that. And I, I want to remind you that you are not, if you're single in the room, a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. As if to be married is like the pinnacle of everything that God would want in our life. It's not. As a matter of fact, the New Testament leans us toward the single life. Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7 leans us toward it. Holding us up, up as not just like the secondary sort of like B option for life, but as a, an A option for life. Because it comes with unique opportunities, unique ways that you can love Jesus and leverage your life for, for mission and ministry. Singleness in the New Testament is to be revered and, and loved. That's how Jesus and Paul talk about these things. And, and if you're single... For every single, and if you're longing for marriage, right now, not after you get married, but right now is the time to see how Jesus talks about marriage, the point and purpose of marriage, and to stack your hands on that with Jesus. The time to do that is now, not, not later, not after you're married. So if you're single in the room, it might be tempting to think this sermon's really not for me. That couldn't be further from the truth. This sermon is for you. That this is the season of your life to think through these things prior to a future marriage. Now, I want to apply it to married folk in the room. To married folk in the room. And I, I want to just encourage everyone who is married to think hard about how to protect your marriage. How to, how to pursue health in your marriage. To guard against sin and hardness of heart. Um, to, to have a healthy marriage, what it constantly requires is a weeding of your marriage. It's springtime right now, so in your yard, you probably have all sorts of weeds that have sprung up over the last month. And if you don't have a constant weeding of your yard, you look up and like a month later, it is consumed with weeds, right? And marriages are the same. If there's not a consistent weeding of your marriage, you just look up and it's got weeds all over it. Unhealth just kind of springs up out of it. So, so men, pursue your wife. T take your wife for a walk. Be tender with her. Love her. Help her flourish as a human being. To the ladies in the room, pursue your man. Love him. Find evidences of grace and encourage him. Help him flourish, right? I mean, help him do that. And one of the best ways you can protect your marriage is by keeping your marriage in good community. Like, if you're not in a group at Stonegate, your marriage is more vulnerable than it should be right now. But when you get in a group, people who know you and will speak the truth in love to you, it's one of God's mercies to keep your marriage healthy. So, so get, your, get your marriage in a group, people that would know and love you. And then when you get into that group, be honest with them about your marriage. Like, how is your marriage doing? How are you? How, how is your spouse right now? And for some, you walked in and you are in a difficult marriage season. It is hard right now. And I want to invite you to, to first just be honest about that, to let people know that. I, don't leave here today without letting people know you're in a hard season. And then for a lot of us in the room, we have a marriage care, uh, care class coming up in May. That would be such a good thing for you to do. Just a, a spoiler alert, there are always less spots than we have people who would like to do that. So if you wanna jump into that May section, you should probably like sign up today for that, but that would be such a healthy thing. If your marriage is in a hard spot, spend time proactively building and cultivating your marriage. And some in the room this morning, you came in and you're contemplating divorce. That, that's one of the burning questions that you came in with today. And I just want to encourage you. First of all, I want to empathize with you. Gosh, that is, 
That is such a difficult, painful reality. And, and as a church, we want to remind you of God's purpose in marriage. We just want to let you wrestle with a text like this, where before Jesus talks about any way out of marriage, he just holds up the purpose of it. And we want to do the same for you today, just to remind you that, that God has gifted you your marriage so that you could have a living, breathing picture. You, you'd have this beautiful opportunity to tell the truth about his never-stopping, unbreakable love for us in Jesus. And if you are contemplating divorce today, like immediately, if this hasn't happened immediately, you need to get your marriage under authority. You need to let our pastors know that so we can begin to walk beside you in that, to help you in that, to help you discern what it is that God would want for you going forward. Do not leave today without letting us know that. Do not leave today. The biggest travesty that could happen today is you walk out without letting someone know that. So make sure you do that. Now, I need to apply it to those, and this is the most painful section right now in the room, to those who have been divorced. And I just want to preface by saying, Jesus' intent with his words is not to hurt you, but to help and offer healing. Jesus does not say what he said today to shame you or to embarrass you, but, but he says what he says to help us face us, to help us be honest before him so that he can actually love the real us. And we as a church want to be the same thing. I'm not doing anything today in an effort to shame, to embarrass, to hurt. My only motivation is to help today. So for some in the room, you have been divorced and you were divorced with grounds. It was a biblically permissible divorce and now you're single. So, so your divorce occurred because you were sinned against. Gosh, how do you condense down what to say in a minute? It's one of the things I, I hate about preaching is it's such general counsel. Man, we want to lament that with you and grieve that with you and, and to remind you that with or without a remarriage, Jesus promises to be enough. He promises to be enough. And if you're thinking about remarriage in the future, it is so important that right now you get clear on how the Bible talks about divorce and remarriage, that, that you get clear about that now so that you will know who you can even entertain a remarriage with. You need to get clear about that right now. And now, here's what we all need to like, recognize, especially if you're in this category, that marrying a person who shouldn't remarry anyone but their former spouse is a serious sin. That is a breaking of the seventh commandment. This is what Jesus is getting at here. That's breaking the seventh commandment. That, that's serious. So, so you have to do the thinking now, right? And, and because we live in a no-fault divorce sort of culture, there is a great chance that you're gonna get to know someone and recognize they didn't have biblical grounds for a divorce, therefore they don't have biblical grounds for a remarriage. So you're gonna have to pull out of that relationship with them and actually tell them, not only can you not move forward with them, but you actually are gonna be the one to tell them, I, I need to point you back to your former spouse and reconciliation there. So, so you've gotta make sure you get straight on, on divorce, remarriage, how Jesus talks about these things in the Bible. So that's it for those who are divorced with grounds and, and still single. Uh, another category of people in the room are those who have been divorced without biblical grounds. So you shouldn't have gotten divorced and you're single. So in other words, you're single, but you shouldn't be. So if, if you haven't already, 
This would be such a wonderful morning to bring that divorce before the Lord and to repent, to seek for forgiveness, to, to thank God that he meets us in these moments. And listen, repentance is not going to be met with embarrassment from God, with shame from God. When we bring our sin before the Lord, here's what we can expect from God, to be loved right there in that broken place by Jesus. And that's the invitation of God to you this morning. And if, if your spouse is still unmarried, to pray and to pursue reconciliation with your former spouse. Listen, we have, we have a God who looked upon his dead son and resurrected him from the dead. And if God can do that, he can resurrect any marriage. Any marriage. God can do that. And wouldn't that be a trophy of God's grace for God to do that? Another category is those who are divorced without biblical grounds and you have remarried without biblical grounds. So, so, or maybe you were free to remarry, to marry or remarry, but you married a person who was not free to remarry. So, so what should you do? So I think there's two things to say to that. One is, this is another, it's an invitation from God to repent of that. And, and repentance doesn't look like us saying, well, man, thank God I didn't know that back then. I've already kind of done it and now my life can kind of, that's not the right, that, that heart shows that still, something is still off inside of us. That, that repentance should look like us bringing that sin before the Lord and saying to God, I'm, I'm sorry for that. I didn't wrestle with the scriptures. I, I moved forward without you in that. I was blind to my own sin and I've broken your heart and please forgive me. And it probably looks like seeking forgiveness for those who were involved in that. Maybe that's an ex-spouse, your former pastor. Uh, maybe that was uh, your kids, your in-laws. Whoever would it be appropriate to seek forgiveness from. But the first step would be repentance. And then the second thing I think Jesus would say to you today is to trust him for the help that you need right now in your current marriage. The answer isn't to compound our sin by adding another divorce to it, but to depend upon the grace of God right now to help you live in the I do that you have made. Now here's the last thing I want to say and then we'll be done. God, and aren't we grateful for this? God redeems sexual sinners. God redeems seventh commandment breakers. God redeems things like divorce. Aren't we grateful for that? What would any of us do in the room if those statements weren't true? God redeems these things. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Like all sin, divorce is redeemable. And it's interesting because there's a whole book in the Bible that's included in the Bible to help us see how redeemable divorce is. And it's the story of Hosea. If you know how the story goes, God calls Hosea to marry Gomer. The problem was Gomer's profession. She was a prostitute. But God tells Hosea, I want you to go and pursue her. I want you to buy her out of prostitution. I want you to woo her and win her over. I want you to make a covenant with her to love her for the rest of her life. And Hosea does it. He, he does it. He goes and buys her out of prostitution and he marries her. And things are going good all for about one chapter. And then you look up and in the story of Hosea, Gomer leaves. She sells herself back into prostitution. And then God looks at Hosea again and says, Hosea, Go and get Gomer again. 
I want you to go and buy her out of prostitution again. I want you to bring her back, to love her, to be faithful to her, to make a new covenant with her. Even in her unfaithfulness, I want you to be faithful to her, Hosea. And the book of Hosea is not in the Bible to highlight Hosea's love for Gomer, but to highlight God's love for us, for you, for you, a sexual sinner, for you, the unfaithful. It's meant to highlight God's love to you. God is the one who comes after sexual sinners, seventh commandment breakers, with a never stopping, never breaking, always pursuing love, even in the midst of our spiritual adultery, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness to God. I'll close with these words from Kevin DeYoung. He says it this way, to those who have sinfully divorced, to those whose sin caused the divorce, to those who are now remarried when they shouldn't be. And we could just say to everyone in the room, to every breaker of the seventh commandment, he says this, run to the cross. Run to the cross. It is no light thing to tear asunder what God joined together. It is no small mistake to pursue an adulterous second marriage. But God's grace is not light, and God's grace is not small. Aren't we thankful for that? Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is mercy yet for you. But the contrition must be real. The admission of guilt must be honest. The repentance must be earnest. A broken heart and a contrite spirit the Lord will never deny. Run to God. Plead with God. Know his adopting love. Experience again his justifying and free grace. And then he goes on to quote these words from that old familiar hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to ask the Lord to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be this morning. What's the condition of your marriage today? Jesus is inviting you to be honest with that question. And it would be a travesty for you to walk out of here without doing that. Is your marriage struggling? You struggling? Your spouse struggling? Why wouldn't you be known in that today? Jesus' intent, our intent as a church family is not to shame you. It's not to embarrass you. It's to help. It's to help. So we're about to have prayer tables open while we sing. We're about to have post-service prayer when we finish today. Do not leave without letting someone know that. When you look back over your life, what, what needs to be repented of? Today is an invitation from God to do that work.
that there is only one way through the nagging guilt and shame that many people who are divorced feel. And that's not to bury it and try to keep it at bay. It's to drag it into the light with Jesus. Do that today. And for some of us in the room, we have not entered into the marriage. To the marriage, the the one with Jesus. And this is your day for that. to, To push your life across that line of faith, to hold your life up to God and say, I am trusting in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection for my rescue. God, save me. And God stands there with arms wide open, ready to have a wedding with you today. So, oh God, would you meet with us? Would you help us today? God, help us. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.